Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. morning. It's good to see you. Leviticus. Take your Bibles and turn Leviticus as we've been looking at substitution, sacrifices, and scapegoats. Leviticus 16. I hope you've enjoyed this series in Leviticus as we just take a moment to go through Leviticus in a, in a big way. Let me ask you a question as you're turning. Have you ever been so angry with someone that you've refused to speak to them? or even be in their presence, or be in the same room? Have you ever had that, where they've, they've ticked you off, or done something so uh, despicable that it's so difficult to even be around them? I mean, has that person been a family member, maybe a neighbor, a coworker, a friend? The question I'm asking is, how does one go about finding reconciliation with someone has done you wrong? Forgiveness, forgiveness. Many times we'll say that word, yeah, I forgive you, but you know what I'm talking about. We can forgive people. We've had people forgiven us, but being reconciled with them is so much different. You know this, right? You've forgiven people, but yet you don't trust them. You, you struggle with them. And there are situations in which, yes, that happens. Well, boy, I just don't think I can be in the same room with them. Oh, I forgive them. In last week's passage, we examined the third temporary solution in God's redemption plan to redeem man from the penalty of sin and to reconcile man back to his favor. That solution was the purity laws, or some call it the holiness code. And these codes detailed how the children of Israel, and that's very important, how the children of Israel were to remain ceremoniously clean in the ordinary task of life. The purpose of these purity laws was found in Leviticus 15 when God said, Thus ye shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. In other words, we realize from reading last week is that God says, If you're going to approach me in worship, you're going to do it on my terms. In other words, how we approach God is very important. And only those who approach God in holiness can worship. The children of Israel were to make a distinction between what was ordained clean or unclean for them. We close with the exhortation that you and I, though we are not children of Israel, we are removed from that nation, that even today as believers, as children of God, we too are to distinguish between good and evil and to pursue holiness and our daily lives. Now, as we continue on through Leviticus, going at it at a, at a kind of a, a maybe a 5,000, 10,000 foot level, we want to come to the fourth temporary solution, and that's key, the fourth temporary solution in God's redemption plan. First, let's review the first three. They're there on the monitor. First, you might remember the rituals that included the sacrifices and the festivals. We looked at the sacrifices. In a couple weeks, we'll get to the festivals. The second was that priests were to serve as mediators between God and men. Remember that question, who can contend with God? 
Well, God gave us the high priest. And then thirdly, the purity laws, as we saw last week, that define what is clean or unclean. The fourth, as you're going to look at today, is the day of atonement. We're, we're working our fourth way of which God has said, here's how I'm going to solve temporarily redeeming my people. And after the death of Aaron's two oldest sons, you might recall from several weeks ago, that the Lord spake to Moses coming in today and he gave them specific instructions concerning the day of atonement. Turn to chapter 16, verse 29. Leviticus, he'll be here on the monitor as well, but just so you can follow along. And again, if you would like a Bible, a good translation of God's word, please let Dustin and I know, or Randy, we'd love to get one into your hands for free so you can leave and join with us as we read through. Listen to what uh, the scripture has to say. And it shall be, he writes, a statue to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. That seems to be kind of uh, oxymoron, right? Afflict yourself and do no work. We kind of put those two together. Neither the native nor the stranger who sojourn among you. For on this day, in verse 30, shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. That, you know, this is an editorial note. I, I, I think I see this maybe for the first time, really. For this day shall atonement, shall, not that you shall make atonement, but you shall receive atonement. Isn't that interesting? You're not going to make atonement, but look at it, he says, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. This is a receiving, not something that you're doing on your own. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Verse 31 is a Sabbath, a solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statue forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and thank you for your word, even as we come to a book that for many of us can be very confusing, uh, one that can be used against us many times as we think of all these laws and rituals and codes that seem just out of whack and just culturally uh, distanced from us. So Father, I pray that your spirit just reign here this morning. Just work within our hearts. Help us to listen with attentive, honest ears. And then Father, that our spirits would be willing to work with your spirit, that you may cause us to respond to what you're calling us to this morning. Thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So again, I, I want to give you just some summary and facts, okay? So just stay with me here, and you may want to just work your way through that chapter with me, because I'll kind of go in order there. But the Day of Atonement, again, is a holy day, and it's still observed by Jews around the world. It is now known as Yom Kippur, and was celebrated last month on September 18th and 19th, right here. The Messianic Church that meets here did it. It was kind of an interesting day as they did that. The following sequence, as we're going to go, describes the activities of the high priest and those who would be watching and worshiping on that day, as well as those who assisted him. So as we work through here, you would see that the high priest would wash himself at the basin in the courtyard dressed in the tabernacle. You may recall the tabernacle is that tent-like structure uh, that they would worship in, that they would come. There would be three sections. There would be the open part of the tabernacle, then the holy place, and then the holy of holies, or the most holy place. So we'd come in the place and he would dress in the tabernacle. However, instead of dressing in all his finery that we saw maybe two weeks ago, he dressed more in a humble fashion. Secondly, the high priest would offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and his family. He would then enter the most holy place that they could only go into once a year. 
with the bull's blood, incense, and the burning coals from the, uh, uh, from the altar of the burnt offerings. He would sprinkle the blood's, uh, bull's blood on the mercy seat seven times. That's the Ark of the Covenant. You've read that, or at least you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you kind of know what we're talking about. It had this mercy seat that was sitting on top. And then he would go back to the courtyard and he would cast lots for two goats. He would then sacrifice one goat as a sin offering for the people. He would then re-enter the most holy place to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and on the holy place once again. He would then return once out again to the altar of burnt offerings and he'd cleanse it with the blood of the bull and the goat. The scapegoat, the second goat, was dispatched to the wilderness Afterwards, the one who had taken care of the gold would cleanse himself. The high priest would then remove his special day of atonement clothing, rewash and put on his regular fine uh, high priest clothing that they had made for him. And then he would offer two rams as a butter offering for himself and the people once again. The fat of the sin offering was burned as, as we had saw several weeks ago. The bull and the goat sin offerings were carried outside the camp to be burned. They could not stay in. And then the one who burned the sin offering cleansed himself. As you can see from this list, this was probably an exhausting day, but it was full of solemn observance, rituals, and worship. It was the climax of the Jewish calendar and Jewish life. It is the day that they are looking forward to. One teacher notes that the day of atonement was the one day out of the year when God, and this is important, when God would provide a way by which everyone's sin could be forgiven and the nation be holy again. Now you might remember of all the sacrifices and the holy codes, there was ways in which they would, if they did an intention, unintentional sin, the things that they would do to make themselves ceremoniously clean. However, as Pastor John MacArthur notes, that even with the most scrupulous observance of the required sacrifice, of all the things that they had to go through day in and day out, many sins and defilements still remained unacknowledged, unconfessed, and therefore without specific expiation or making of amends. This special inclusive sacrifice was designed to cover all of that in one fell swoop, so to speak. In other words, the Day of Atonement answered the question, what happens when Israel, when the children of God, fail to obey the commands of God? What happens? It is apparent as we read through Leviticus that it was impossible to obey all the commands and the expectations of the law perfectly. It could not be done. Yet, that's what God demands from his children Perfect obedience. The law of God is something you, need, you and I need to understand. That the law of God, the law of Moses, was never designed to provide a way of salvation. Hence why we've been calling those four solutions temporary. But it does show us, the law does show us what God requires. Let me ask you, do you know what God requires? Do you know what he expects of you? Now, I think most of you here, you would say, I believe in a God. I believe in, in some type of higher, higher power. Then if that is the case, then what does he expect of you? What does he require of you? In Matthew 5, 48, Jesus warned the religious leaders that God expects perfection. 
He says in Matthew 5, 48, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is, anyone want to finish the sentence? Perfect. I don't know about you, but looking in the mirror this morning, I recognize something very important to myself. We are not perfect. You and I cannot obey the law perfectly. Scripture actually points out to fail in just one point of the law actually makes you guilty of all of it. One stumble, one failure, guilty of all. All of Scripture points to our guilt. It says that there are none righteous, no, not one. It says that, the, that we have all come short of the glory of God, that we've all turned away. And the Day of Atonement, as we come to Leviticus 16, was an important step in God's plan to redeem His people. Amen? However, this is where I have a PSA, a public service announcement. Before you and I can understand the Day of Atonement in chapter 16, you and I must understand something different. And this is when on Friday and Saturday of preparing my message, my message took a hard turn to the right. Before you and I could understand Leviticus chapter 16 and the Day of Atonement, you and I need to understand one doctrine very clear. And it's a very important doctrine and one that is neglected and one that actually is, others try to diffuse, they try to take out of our, out of our, our hymnals, they try to take it out of our songs. And that's the reality of God's wrath. Before we can go on and you and I can dig into Leviticus 16, which I intended to do and we will do next week, before you and I could take any type of spade and start turning that dirt, you and I need to understand why do we need a day of atonement and what is happening in that short chapter. And that means you and I need to understand the wrath of God. Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, declared, look at the monitor here, I want you to understand this. And I want you to see it, not just hear it. Where it says, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell, but the mere pleasure of God. And that is the issue that all of humanity faces when standing before a holy God. As rebellious sinners with an innate hatred of God, and as you say, that is a strong word, I'm only using scripture. You see, as rebellious sinners with an innate hatred of God, we are born hating God. We are all guilty and deserving of justice. And scripture tells us that the penalty of sin is death. The Old Testament prophet Nahum proclaimed that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath, listen for this, for his enemies. What you and I must understand is that you and I are born as enemies of God. And that may come as surprise, shocking, or new to you, but we are born as enemies of God. And I love these little children 
that are in the back and we hold them. But we're already praying that God would call them to cells. Why? Because we know that there's nothing that keeps them from hell but the mere pleasure of God and his wonderful gospel and grace. We are rebellious against God's righteous rule. And we are vessels of God's wrath ready to be poured into. The problem is, is that you and I do not consider that our sin, and listen to this, you and I do not consider that our sin is an offense against a holy God. We feel that we don't have a problem with God, so everything's okay. And you know what I'm going to say. God has a problem with us. He calls us disobedient children, rebellious, sinners, deserving of hell. Those are harsh words, and I, I would agree they are harsh words. Pastor John Piper shares five facts about the wrath of God from scriptures. If you like to take notes, these are here on the screen, just five of them. The first one you and I need to understand about scripture is that God's wrath tells us, that scripture tells us that God's wrath is just. And you and I struggle with this. It has become common for many to argue that the God of the Old Testament is a moral monster. And that is by no means is he worthy of worship. However, biblical authors have no such problem in understanding that God's wrath is just. In fact, God's wrath is said to be perfect in a perfect accord with God's justice. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 that because of our hard and impenitent heart, he says you are storing up, for your, you are storing up wrath for yourselves. As long as we continue to disobey God and rebel against Him, we are pouring more and more wrath on the day of wrath. When God's judgment, righteous judgment, or when God's righteous judgment, I, I think of the, the uh, you know, you go to Olive Garden, you go somewhere and they say, you want some more cheese, right? I think it's a silly, silly thing. I don't know why I'm thinking about it. But you know, you put it on there. Now tell me when. And you know, and you ever just forget and you're talking, you just forget and that poor person is just sitting there waiting for you. I told you a story of the young man when I was a youth pastor back in Illinois. I said, Kurt, man, why, why don't you accept Christ? You've heard this gospel. Why don't you accept Christ? He's 15, 16 years old. He says, I just want to live my life. I want to enjoy it. See, his thing is, if I, if I accept Christ, then, then life is over. I'd love to get a hold of him now. He's, man, he's probably in his mid-30s. He has children Man, if you haven't accepted Christ, man, you're just storing up wrath. That bowl is filling up. Are you ready to stop saying when? Now? Enough? God's wrath is in proportion to human sinfulness. J.I. Packer, a theologian, since God's wrath in the Bible is never capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, moral, ignoble thing, that human anger is so often. See, we think of anger as God's anger is like our anger, and that's not true. That's not scriptural. Instead, it's a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It's not subjective. It is evil. And it cannot be God's sight. So God's wrath is just, number two, God's wrath is to be feared. That's why it says fear the Lord. 
It is to be feared because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It is to be feared because we are justly condemned sinners apart from Christ. That's what, what's been happening here is Christ is trying to bring the children of Israel closer to him. God's wrath is feared because he's powerful enough to do what he's promised. What does he say there, scripture Jesus say? He says, do not fear the one who can kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul. Who do you think he's talking about? Some people think he's talking about Satan, the devil. Satan can't kill your soul. He's a defeated angel. The one who can kill the body and soul is the almighty creator. The one who gave you life is the one who takes it. So he's powerful enough to do exactly what he says. Don't test him in that regard. Then God's wrath is to be feared because God promises eternal punishment apart from Christ. And again, that's why I would encourage you to come to Dustin's classes. We're looking at hell and I think you're at a good time to understand really what hell is. I think the problem is, is we just don't think of it. We don't understand it. God's wrath is just. God's wrath is to be feared. But God's wrath is consistent in both the Old and New Testament. We think there's two different gods, but it's not. It's common to think of the Old Testament God as mean, harsh, and wrath-filled. And I can understand why you see it. It seems different. And then the God of the New Testament is kind and patient and loving. But neither of these portraits are representative as scriptures as teaching on the wrath of God. There's, not a, there's a balance there, and we need to understand that. Number fourth, God's wrath is his action against sin. It's a loving action against sin. See, God is love and God does all things for his glory. But the problem is, is we think that, that we're everything to God, but really God's love is his glory for him, for who he is. And, our, and our love, his love for us flows from that. God's love for his own glory is the most sobering reality for many. And you have to realize is why our sin is so detestable to God because it flies in the face of his glory of who his God is. It's the one who shakes his fist in God and says, you did this. Who are you? Who struggles and fights with God? Who desires to be their own boss and the king of their own life? We're like two and three-year-olds saying, I'm the boss. You're not the boss of me. But listen what the writer of Hebrew proclaims in chapter 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If I would, if you would allow me, I'm going to do it anyway, but I want to share with you a part of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He read this 300 years ago, and it shook his church and the country to the core. It is a sermon, by the way, I think that still is taught in most English literature classes, even in public schools. Listen to what he writes. The God that holds you over the pit of hell 
much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. Already the imagery there. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into fire. He is of pure eyes and to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times as abominable in his eyes as the most hateful venomous serpent is in yours. What a, right there, it just grabs you. As you recognize truly what we are in God's sight. He goes on to say, you have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. Imagine that. As enemies of God, he keeps us from destruction rather than removing his hand. Is be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell last night, that you suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason. To be given why you should have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of worship provoking his pure eye by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Hence, have you prepared yourself for worship? Have you approached God with the holiness and the cleanness that he has required? Yea, there is nothing else to be here given as a reason why you do not at this very moment drop down into hell. O sinner, he writes, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of God, whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. Your very existence provokes him. Our acts of disobedience, of distrust, of unfaithfulness provoke and incense him. And we hang by a slender thread with the flames of the divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Speaking of that small little thread. It'd be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment. But you must suffer it for all of eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see along forever a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. He promises you will be absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, and any rest of all. Could you imagine that? No end in sight. You will certainly know, or you will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling with this almighty merciless vengeance. And then when you have done so, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point. It's just a dot. It's just a period to what remains. So that your punishment indeed be infinite. 
Can you take a moment and just dwell on that for a moment with me? I've been walking, trying to get up early and do some miles. And there gets to the point where I've been doing some hills and I'm always saying, I can do this next hill. And I can't wait till I get to that hill. And I get to it and I'm just dying. Then I look at the next hill and say, not today. But I'm one of those ones you're looking and you're counting those steps and I'm looking and I know that when I reach it, that's it. I've reached it for today. But yet, could you imagine never reaching the top of the hill? Muscles cramping, breath not coming in, 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 but in shallow gasp. That's eternity without Christ. Edward goes on. Who can express what state of soul in such circumstances is? All that we can possibly say about it is but very feeble. And that's so true as we go through our Sunday school and we go about hell. You're not getting the reality of it. For those of you who say, and some of you, I can understand why you would say this, this is hell on earth. Earth is hell. You don't know that. You cannot even contemplate what hell is. It is inexpressible and inconceivable for who knows the power of God's anger. How dreadful, he writes, is the state of those that are daily and hourly in danger of this great wrath and infinite misery. But you and I must understand this, as I quote, this is the dismal case of every soul in this city, in this country, and in this world. And of those that are sitting here this morning that has not been born again. However moral, strict, sober, religious that you may be, that is your state. Would you consider it? Whether young or old, would you consider the wrath of God? He goes on to say that there's reason to think that there are many in this congregation now hearing this discourse that will actually be subjects of this misery, misery to all eternity. In other words, there's some of you that that may be your eternal state. We do not know who they are or in what seats they sit or what thoughts they have. It may be some that they are now at ease listening to what we're saying here, thinking that this is not talking about me. If you and I knew that there was one person but one in this whole congregation that was to be the subject of this misery, what an awful thing it would be to think of it. If you and I knew who it was, what an awful sight it would be to see such a person go to hell to eternity. How might the rest of the congregation lift up and say, would you come and would you choose Christ? Would we not? But alas, instead of one, how many it is likely will remember this discourse in hell? And it would be a wonder if some that are now present should not be in hell in a very short time before this year is out. And it would be no wonder if some persons that now sit here in some seats of this meeting house in health and quiet and secure should be there before tomorrow morning. This has become very real to my family. And I want to say this with as much 
tact as I can. We have a friend that's in the hospital that is waiting a heart transplant. And we rejoice because he was a candidate for a heart transplant when at first they said he wasn't. And the good news is that if he got into the hospital now, it would increase his chances of getting a heart. So our prayer was that he would get in the hospital, even if he's in good condition at the moment, and he would wait a month, three months, five months in that hospital waiting for a heart. And so he did. So we rejoiced with that. Friday, they accepted him. He's in the hospital. Things are going to be tough for him, but he knows that he's waiting for a heart. But as I was contemplating this message last night and I was praying, and we're looking forward to going up and seeing him here in the next week or so. We're praying for that heart. But then all of it struck me is that for our friend to live, someone's going to have to die. I don't know who that is. So I'm praying that my friend will live and I can enjoy his friendship and we can enjoy him for a lot longer. But in the same time, there may be a family and some friends that are right now praying at the bedside of someone that they too will be able to spend. But then God's going to answer one prayer or another. One man's death, one woman's death leads to another man's life. So now it makes prayer much more difficult. But what made me thinking about this is because Dawn shared with me that our friends are already praying for the donor and his family. I joked with them at dinner. I said, well, listen, uh, if you get that heart transplant, are you going to ask, have to ask Jesus in your heart again? <laughs> That's an old Baptist joke. Because we use those phrases, if you ask Jesus in your heart, us. And I want him to get that heart. I don't want anyone to lose their child, their father, their mother, their daughter, so my friend can live, but yet that's sin, that's life. I pray that he gets it, he gets it soon, and that the family would be able to find some peace in the fact that the donor gave his heart to someone else. But as I contemplate this, I pray more importantly that whoever becomes the donor will wake up on the side of heaven. How about you? You've got friends, you've got families. The wrath of God is real. With these words, the Holy Spirit inflamed a revival that shook New England 277 years ago. It's called the First Great Awakening. You might have heard of it. Oh, that a real understanding of God's wrath would do so today and shake the foundations. Could it begin here in this small community? I ask you this morning, do you understand the true nature of the triune God? Do you recognize that he is the holy, pure creator of the universe? Do you understand the true nature of yourself, that you're a rebellious sinner, enemies of God, vessels deserving of his wrath? Do you understand the wrath of God, that it's ready to be poured out on justice for his enemies? 
If so, does it propel you to action? Do you repent of dead works? You say, you've said that at least three or four times today. What do you mean by that? Well, dead works is trying to work our way to heaven. We try to earn our way to heaven. But it cannot be done. Just as I pointed out, the day of atonement is something that is provided for you. We are recipients of it. The Bible says that we understand that we repent of dead works. We say, Lord, we know that this does not save us. And we turn and we trust in the works of Christ. That God has accepted that. Does it propel you into evangelism and sharing the good news? For we do not know what time we have here on earth. We have this very strong with our family in several different cases. Many of you are praying for them. Now that's the law. God's wrath. I want to leave you with some tension, but I want to alleviate the tension in just a moment. Because I want to share with you the good news. The wrath of God is being stored up and will be poured out on his enemies in just righteous anger. But yet God in his mercy, amen, he put into motion a redemption plan to reconcile us, not just to forgive, but to reconcile us back to himself. And I don't want to leave you, more, you this morning without any hope. You and I must feel this tension between God's law, God's wrath, and Israel's inability to completely obey. It's the same for us. But praise God, he has given us the good news of the gospel, the day of atonement, and that all that it pointed to. You may now may be wondering about the fifth point from John Piper. I gave you four. Here it is, number five. It's on the screen. God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus Christ. God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. In saving us from his own wrath, God has done what you and I could not do. Jesus does what God requires. And he has done what we could not do or deserve. The Apostle Paul wrote, writes in Romans 8, For God has done what the law, speaking of Leviticus, was weakened by the flesh that it could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, Christ comes and does what you and I could not by doing all that the law requires. Not according to the flesh, not by our works, but by the spirit. And let me help you understand this. If you can take this, write this down. The hope for sinners is that between us and the wrath of God, the hope for sinners, for you and I, for our children, for our friends, for our loved ones, is that between us and the wrath of God stands the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Took 13 years, but thank you. Here we have the ultimate good news. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Because of Christ, God can rightly call sinners justified. God has done what we could not, and he has done what we did not deserve. Charles Wesley rightly exalted in this good news. The song here is on the monitors. You may know this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain. For me who him 
to death pursued amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now, you may understand that we didn't even get into Leviticus 16. But I want to end here this morning before we go into the rest of it by noting that God's redemption plan has two goals. Forgiveness and reconciliation. God's redemption plan has two goals. Forgiveness and forgiveness of sin and reconciliation. So here is your, your, your application, your, your homework for this week. I'm going to ask you, please reread Leviticus 16 this week with this message that I gave you in mind. Think of the wrath of God as you reread Leviticus 16. I'm assuming that you read it. I encourage you to read the passage before the week. Reread of the Day of Atonement with a right understanding of God's wrath being stored up against rebellious sinners, but also the wonderful promise as a substitute, a redeemer, the one who becomes the scapegoat for rebellious sinners. Every head bowed, every eye closed. As the worship team comes up, I'm going to ask Randy and uh, Landon to be up here at the end of the service. If you'd like someone to pray for you, if you have a question about what it means to repent of your dead sins, to turn from your sins and turn and trust Christ, of how to escape the wrath of God, that's the good news, is you can escape the wrath of God. They'll be up here to share that good news with you. We'll also be in 208 for lunch afterwards. We invite you to join with us. It's a good time to get to meet us. But let's pray. As we take a moment to pause, I want you to consider the wrath of God. Where do you stand? Would you pray and ask God, how should you respond? Maybe for the first time, it's for you to respond and recognize that you're a sinner in the need of a, of a savior. You need to understand the wrath of God, of a holy God and who we are. Or maybe you're convicted this morning that you have not been sharing the gospel. You have not understood the wrath of God in hell and the importance of sin. If so, would you respond to his work? Father, we leave it up to you, the triune God, to work this, the message in many different ways. Challenge us, encourage us. But Father, let us not walk away and not consider the words that I've spoken today. Let us not consider, or let us consider the words of Scripture. Let us examine ourselves and see where we stand before you. And Father, let us respond to the Spirit's work. We thank you for your grace and your faith. Lord, that you'd give it in a greater measure to each and every one of us that we may be called the sons and daughters of you and we look forward to that reunion and eternity in heaven we praise you for all that you are and for all that you've done we praise in Christ's name Amen We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need if you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.
There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.